Welcome to the Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything, from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Cities are amazing, built environments full of diversity, energy, culture and pace. What makes a city more livable though, as cities get more crowded, traffic intensifies and people struggle to find affordable housing close to their schools, workplaces and communities that they know and love? Does a city need our refining to truly sing in 2022? Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Tammy Wong-Hilbert, who I met almost 20 years ago when we worked together at Customs House on Sydney's iconic Harbourside foreshore. She's now based in Victoria, an hour's flight from Sydney, and Tammy has a real sense of what makes cities livable. Tammy's an artist, curator, and senior lecturer at RMIT University School of Art, Master of Arts, Arts Management, specialising in curating. In 2021, she was a recipient of an Australian Council of University Art and Design Schools Research Innovation Award. Her research focuses on curating inclusive cities, enacted through collaborations with marginalised urban communities to unearth and care for their perspectives and build citizen participation through exhibitions and public art projects. These methodologies stem from Tammy's art practice, which focuses on expressing the multi-layered and fragmented spaces between cultures, a result of her position as a fourth-generation Australian of Chinese descent and living in a super-diverse and post-colonial society. She has remained dedicated to increasing the dialogue around Australia's relationship to Asian and Chinese communities through her arts activity and has worked with a wide range of contemporary artists and communities in Australia and Asia, in galleries, museums and public spaces during her career. Her most recent curatorial project was Becoming Home, Stories of Chinese Australians at Art Space Realm in Melbourne in Victoria. And she's currently working on an ArcLink project, Vital Arts, Skilling Young People for Their Futures, awarded in 2021. And welcome to the podcast, Tammy. I can't believe it's taken me so long to get you on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm very excited about this interview. Excellent. I can't believe I don't know this, but what did young Tammy want to be when she grew up? And we worked together for a couple of years and I never asked you that. So can you remember (laughs) what, what you wanted to be as a kid and kind of did you get there? Before I jump into that, I'll just start by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners on the land on where I'm working today and respectfully recognise their elders past, present and emerging. But just um, going back to that question, my childhood career ambitions, the only thing I actually remember from my childhood is identifying as an as a visual artist and I remember adopting that identity even before going to school it was who I thought I was and knew what I wanted to be. And I was a very hands-on child. I made things. I made everything. <laughs> and But it's also that identification with being an artist that actually really gave me my confidence as a child. And it was the tools that I used to discover the world. Excellent. Oh, that's amazing. I, yeah, it, it's just funny that you never ask friends or colleagues what they wanted to do. You know what I mean? It's sort of you just, yeah. they just arrive and you go, oh, you must you yes. must be on the path you're always meant meant to be on. So I'm always yes. 
love asking people that. Yep. So in your view, what makes a city livable? And I guess how do we know that we're in one? Well, when, when I think about city livability, it actually means many different things to different people. And like more broadly, it can mean how accessible a city is to services, employment, education, infrastructure, housing, transport technology, access to the natural environment and public space. And um, you even mentioned that right in your introduction. And, you know, of course, my area of expertise and interest is really in that access to arts and culture, which I see as a right to the city. And it's what I'm most focused on. I think livability comes from how much agency we have in participating in these various aspects of urban life. And cities that are livable are also diverse in population. There is an openness to engage with that diversity, which can lead to much more resilience in community relations. In my community-engaged artistic work, I focus on working with marginalised communities to access arts and culture through participating in the creative process as collaborators or as part of an audience. It gives people an opportunity to reflect on and express ideas, contemplate new knowledge, consider new and different perspectives. And I see it as a way of connecting people to place in a more meaningful way and therefore making place potentially a more livable city. Yeah, that's great. I love that summary. I'm sure it's really complicated. And you mentioned inclusiveness as being such a big part of that livable city dynamic Are there any examples that are maybe good and not so good in that modelling that you can share? Because I I guess, you know, most of the world cities that we know have a lot of inclusiveness in them because they're so diverse, they've kind of adapted over time. But there are probably some cities that are more homogenous in their their cultural existence. And so, you know, I guess without wanting to sort of label them good or bad, but, you know, what makes something work better and more livable in that dynamic than not? You know, inclusiveness is certainly a really big part of making a city livable. And when communities feel they are included and participating, they also feel valued and they have a sense of belonging in that place. And, you know, they feel a part of the fabric of the city community. For example, I guess thinking about Melbourne where I live, I I actually, you know, Melbourne actually has won many awards for being a, a livable city. And From my own lived experience of being here, you know, I do feel that it has, it is a city where the community really looks at innovative approaches to give various underrepresented communities a platform to be included and to participate in broader society. Of course, there's always room for improvement, but I feel it's a very open society and I've had many great opportunities here to work with arts workers and social workers and local governments to actually really try and build those relationships. My most recent project was actually with the city of Maroondah and they actually reached out to me because they recognised that 20% of their community actually speaks Mandarin. They also were aware of those rising tensions that have been occurring over the last few years between the Australian and federal governments and how that's having an impact on their local community. And they wanted to do better with representing people that are part of their constituents. So, you know, it was really interesting. It was People were so enthusiastic when I worked on that project. The participants themselves, they really wanted to be part of it. And also the audience members were just thrilled to be represented. 
So as a child of an immigrant family, you did mention that you're a fourth-generation Australian of Chinese descent. What do you make of how transferable those city living experiences are from one big city to another? I've obviously travelled widely like you have. You know, Sydney, you know, architecturally and where it is and how, you know, lifestyle-wise is very different from, say, a modern Shanghai or a New York. But are there things that are kind of common in that kind of what makes those great cities great and how transferable is it from city to city? Like if I go to New York, am I going to find similar levels of diversity or it will be really different because the the built environment is so different it's so intense and the climate is also very different I do think that plays plays a part as well yeah yeah interesting climate yes is definitely something that I think about a lot but I, I think on the surface global cities may have similarities in infrastructure but I find that every community and micro community within a city has a very different outlook and that, that is actually what's really worth investigating and unpacking further to really understand a place, that relationship that people have to place and who those people are. And I think there are so many layers of history in relation to place that are unique to each place. So I don't think the experience is always transferable. When you get to know local people, they all have their own stories. And that's what I discover each time I work on a new creative project. And for me, coming from the perspective of an immigrant family, I was born here and my family's been living here for over five generations from China, Macau and Hong Kong. And we've been sort of back and forth between the generations. And so I certainly do see the many cultural layers, the super diversity of Australia in different cities and how the layers of migration have had an impact on place. Also coming from Macau and Hong Kong, which were also both colonised by the Portuguese and the British, I often think about these parallel histories with Australia, in particular having another culture imposed on the Indigenous culture, the cultural hierarchy and power that exists in places, uh, and losing access to cultural knowledge and the struggle to regain it and how we value and perceive the Indigenous culture. These reflections on culture do influence me in wanting to work with immigrant children and families struggling to fit into Australian society. I try to show them the tools to reflect their and express their position and to own it and to become familiar with it and to therefore feel proud of where they come from. So in terms of tools, give us an example. What, what would that look like? How would you actually help unpack that or help them navigate that? Well, in past projects, I've, you know, spent a lot of time with particular family members. One particular project I did in Doncaster, I worked with 11 Asian families from a particular school. The school actually had a huge new sort of new immigrant, sort of mostly Chinese sort of families joining the school and the population was growing. And so we worked for 10 weeks on a creative project with the intention of actually exhibiting the work that we made together. But we used art as a way to have conversations about the way artists represent their voices. And so we spent a lot of time with the collection that existed at the city of Manningham, but we also talked about different artists and how they they actually expressed their ideas. And then we actually made work together. We we brainstormed ideas and we brainstormed their positions and actually used that to generate ideas for a, a shared project that we would we developed that ended up being exhibited in the gallery. 
Okay, that's a great example. I can actually picture how that might work. I'm going to throw this out there, and this may not be your view, but I think for a lot of people, cities have in some ways become less vital to the way they exist in a daily basis during the last two years because of COVID-19. And I'm I'm kind of one of those people now. I don't live in the city. I've moved out of Sydney um, to a semi-regional area. Many people in lockdown perhaps felt that you know, cities in some ways were a bit a bit prison-like for them. You know, they didn't need to be close to the office, the traditional centre, the things where you might see theatre or you might go and have lunch with a friend or go and do all those things that cities offer weren't really accessible. So people sort of sought, particularly in Australia, more affordable housing and maybe major lifestyle changes, the tree change or sea change as we like to call it. Now they're coming through the other side of that. There's been a lot of migration and movement away from cities, but does that affect the viability of cities long-term? Do they need to offer us something more to be seen as livable? Well, yeah, that's a really great point. And I think, you know, it's been incredibly hard, the pandemic period. And certainly global cities used to look very attractive before before the pandemic, but I still question, have they become less vital? They're still here. The infrastructure is still here. And certainly I think that some communities have made that change into outer urban and regional areas more permanently. I actually moved to the to the peri-urban sort of edge of Melbourne even way before the pandemic. You're ahead uh, but of I, the trend, Tammy. Let's be <laughs> I was ahead of the trend. That's right. But I, I still actually think of the city as that expanded kind of space of the city and I still work I still rely on that urban infrastructure even though I'm right at the edge but part of the character of cities is that they're always in flux the last exhibition I worked on I discovered that the Cheong family that I was working with actually commissioned Walter Burley Griffin to master plan the suburb of Croydon in in Melbourne in the 1920s to become the garden suburb and part of it the plan was did actually eventuate, but it didn't quite totally eventuate. And that was actually a result of the Depression in the 1930s. They didn't actually sell all the land. So I I think there might be ambitions for places to be a certain way. They may not always, that may not always happen. But I do think that the role of urban centres will change and become more focused as places of leisure, gathering and socialising. They'll have a different role. And perhaps creative communities and social life will also be more distributed and localised throughout the city because people are inhabiting their local neighbourhoods in different ways since the pandemic. I don't know if I could say less vital, but I think the way we move around them and how we use them has definitely shifted and that will evolve and transform. So why does it matter that we be near a city, for example? Because I'm thinking of how tech really allowed a lot of people, depending on what they did for for work or for study and so forth, to use tech and to be connected to city experiences. And perhaps even when you and I worked together, there was that really, it was really um, early and it was very native, but, you know, online exhibitions and virtual tours of, you know, the Sistine Chapel, for example, in in Italy and so forth. That was kind of happening then. But now we have those hybrid experiences is where if you can't get to the gallery, you could go and dial into a talk or you can see that particular, you know, show online, for example, like a theatre experience. Does the tech kind of inhibit how city experiences can kind of evolve or does it actually help us because we have access to cities? Do we actually need to physically be there, I guess is the question, to really get the best out of a city? Yeah, well, I do think it's really interesting to hear you 
mentioned those examples. And I think what has changed because of the technology becoming so accessible is that we probably have more access to, you know, international events. I mean, for example, I was able to speak to an audience at in Abu Dhabi a few weeks ago. And, you know, I think it's enabled those sorts of interactions that maybe were much harder to do in the past or wasn't so accessible. But I also think there are limitations to the technology as well. And I think that humans create crave being in communities together face-to-face and not just sitting in front of a screen, which is quite exhausting and certainly not how I enjoy experience all the art forms. And after two years of developing projects and lecturing online, it's been such a relief for me to see real human beings during the rollout of my last exhibition, to actually see people smiling and emotionally responding to the content. I felt that sometimes online you just couldn't get that kind of response to your work. And, you know, you're you're totally missing out on that whole embodied experience when you don't connect in real life, which is why it is important to get back into gallery spaces after a long absence. I wanted to feel again what my body felt like in a gallery space in relation to the artworks and the environment that we had created. And it's important to recognise that knowledge can come in many different forms and they can, you know, be experienced by many senses. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say, I wonder if it's generational, and I don't know because we're of a similar vintage, but, you know, would a younger generation who maybe have grown up much more comfortable with just living their lives on a smartphone and through a screen perhaps feel less um, like that FOMO, that missing out, whereas I know I'm like you, I I couldn't wait to go back into a theatre. I didn't care that I had to wear a mask or do, you know, COVID testing beforehand. The fact to experience a show live rather than in my living room was really important to me and I and and also going with friends that social aspect I think which you when you're seeing something on your own through your own screen it's such an individualized experience and I think sometimes these these kind of city options are kind of about community and coming together as well Mm, yes it's not really the same sitting in your lounge room yelling at your computer not really <laughs> <And> applauding <laughs> exactly um another another question which I ask all my guests and I and I'm hopefully can ask this from you today have you had one or two fantastic mentors in your life and I guess who are they and why have they made such an impact perhaps to your career trajectory that's a very difficult question actually I've had so many mentors And I've worked with so many great people that are so determined to make impact, including yourself, and and show how we can really think in expansive ways. And because I could only sort of um, limit it to two, I I just thought of two people that have influenced me. And I wanted to just say that I really adored working with Jennifer Kwok at Customs House when we worked together. Yay, Jennifer. If you're (laughs) out there listening, we'll tag you. (laughs) And I saw her putting into practice taking risks to develop inclusive creative programs back in the early 2000s. And she really, you know, I remember her really wanting to challenge how we perceive Sydney through our programming. And I really enjoyed going on that journey with her. And she also had such a great sense of humour about it. I mean, I just had a flashback to back in 2005 working with Levy and his virtual worlds that were showing what 
you know, Indigenous Australia used to look like. And, you know, that was a long time ago that we were working on those projects and it's still really relevant today. The I guess the other person that I thought about a lot was actually the impact of my mother on my life. And my mum actually didn't have the opportunity to be educated. She actually finished school after primary school in Macau. She actually had to go and work. She had a very large family with seven children. Her, well, her family had seven children, so she was the second oldest and she had to go and work when she was very young. But she always had great wisdom and openness in life, which in hindsight I see as influenced by her Taoist Buddhist upbringing. Um, and she also always encouraged me to be GN, which actually means natural in Cantonese, to be myself. She never put her own expectations onto who I should be. And she just encouraged me to choose what I felt comfortable with, trusted my choices, and always encouraged me to keep going. Even after I had a child, she's like, oh, you can't, you've invested so much in your your studies you need to keep working yeah that's great and and I think you know that sense of autonomy and independence independence I grew up with was very empowering it allowed me to find my own path and it's an outlook I still take with me in my work today as an artist and curator and educator so if we spoke again in a year's time Tammy what would be the number one thing you would have hoped to have changed in your career and why oh good question I do hope that we'll be able to travel overseas again more freely and because I really miss that cross-cultural dialogue and learning from different contexts and it's been pretty pretty hard even though I've been engaged through the technology with you know overseas communities I think just learning in person is a is a very different thing I really hope that that's something that we can improve over the next year or so. Yeah, absolutely. Become global citizens again in the true sense in in some ways. That's right. A final takeaway message for us on the politics of livable cities. Well, the one thing I have learned in being an artist and urban researcher is to be a co-learner in the community. So each encounter that I've had with various communities is an opportunity to learn by doing and solving problems together So by being active in this way, we can all contribute towards making our cities more livable. That's a great message. And if you do want to connect further with Tammy, of course, there'll be some details on our show notes. Until next time, take care. Thank you so much, Tammy, for coming and playing on my podcast today. (laughs) Thanks, Amber. It was so great to catch up with you. Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.